this week on Missions Today. You know, again, in our space at Bible Translation, one of the latest growing partnerships is with national church planting movements. People from the respective countries that God has placed on their heart, their country or their region of the world that they want to see churches planted. And as they're looking up, they're realizing, well, a lot of these areas, there's no scripture. How are we going to plant churches that have any roots that go deep? God's bringing together um, these church planting movements, disciple making movements, and they're saying, can we partner together with you to help see scripture translated in these languages so that we can plant churches? The push to get the Bible into every language in every location continues, and partnerships are helping to drive that effort forward. Hi, I'm Colin Lambert, and this is Missions Today from Resource Global. You know, just over a week ago, I was in Orlando for an annual gathering of the Resource Global team, and we stayed on the campus of Wycliffe Bible Translators. I was excited to have the opportunity while there to connect with Dr. John Chestnut. John serves as the president and CEO of Wycliffe. Did you know they're in their 75th year of Bible translation, and they're pushing hard towards 2033 to see all translations completed? As part of that push, John and team are seeing more and more opportunities for partnership and collaboration. Stay with us today to hear more about John and his path to Wycliffe and what Wycliffe is doing now to make God's Word available to those who still need it. Hey, Dr. Chestnut, thanks so much for your time today. Tell us a bit about your faith journey. You know, I was um, blessed in that I was really, I was able to grow up for the most part in a, in a Christian home. My parents really rededicated their lives to Christ when I was young. And so had that opportunity to watch up close and personal as as uh, my parents were experiencing a growing faith and to get to pursue that. And so uh, at an early age for me, I uh, really felt that God was calling me into ministry. Didn't know what that looked like. But that was kind of from an early start, getting to look ahead. Let's talk about that for a moment, because that is something we talk about here on Missions Today, is this idea of calling or a felt call of some type. You said you didn't know exactly what it was. When was that in your life? Was it middle school, high school? And and what did you begin to sense that the Lord wanted you to do? I remember at a middle school summer camp that uh, really felt that the Lord was saying, you know, at some point, this is going to be you in, in full-time ministry. I didn't know what that looked like. So uh, even consider early on what that looked like in a bivocational type of sense, but just felt throughout and then trying just to continue to pursue that through high school, being involved with the church, leading worship, doing some of those things, or just pursuing God uh, through those early years in whatever way that I could kind of pick up and learn and grow in. When did it become something that you saw might end up being a career, and how did that happen? You know, I don't know if that was ever really a a long-term type of vision that I had, but it was just really looking at that next step each time, that next step of life and saying, Lord, what do you want me to have to do here at this point? And the Lord just seemed to kind of uh, continue to lead in, not, again, not the long-term vision, but just in those incremental steps as I as I move through life there. I know that uh, you and your family served in the Philippines. Tell us a little about that. How did that come about, and what, what were you doing there? One of the first ministry careers is we were in the pastor for about 13 years, and really at the height of that ministry in the in the local church, Church that we felt like the Lord was calling us to to look at missions globally. And so we joined Wycliffe back in 2001, and in 2002, moved to the Philippines and spent nine years there, uh, fully engaged with what God was doing in the Philippines in the area of Bible translation. We have uh, seven kids, three by birth and four by adoption. We went over with five, and then while we were there, also adopted uh, two kids. But it was because our oldest at the time when he moved was 12, 
Uh, it wasn't us as parents making this decision. It really was a family decision that we wanted to do this together. And so, and God allowed us that opportunity to do so. That's cool. What was it like uh, taking a family to a whole new culture? What was that experience like? You know, a little bit, if you traveled with youth groups or groups like that, it was a little bit that way. You know, we had kind of, uh, everyone had to make sure they had their buddy and everything like that getting over. It was it was a big group, you know, to take over. The, the people of the Philippines quickly captured our hearts and, uh, and for our kids, too. And that really, uh, not only did it become an opportunity to see what God was doing over there, but for our kids, it really was, it became home for them. It was a unique time in the history of the work in the Philippines when we, when we arrived, because for so many years, the Philippines had been on the receiving end of missions. And as we came over and were recruited really to, to participate in the work there, the transition was taking place to where more and more the work, the Philippine church had grown to where they were sending out missionaries around the world. And so we got to be part of being part of that transition and seeing many, many sent out around the world. Wow, that's that's incredible. Any challenges in the field? I mean, a lot of times we talk about the wonderful things that happen, but I also know there's challenges. Did you, your family, experience things while you were there that you were just like, boy, this is this is tough, or I wasn't expecting this, or anything along that line? You know, I think a, a couple of things. Certainly, you know, um, as with many people, you experience different type of sicknesses and things, than, and we had our share of that as well, and the kids did and such. But I'd say probably one of the biggest learning lessons out of it, you know, often here in the U.S., we feel like we can really control a lot of our environment, our schedules, and that type of thing. When you get over you know, in, an, in another context like that, you realize how little you really control. And I think that was part of what God was doing in our hearts and minds, just learning that, you know, the the passages that talk about being aliens and strangers, you know, here on this earth, we really felt that because you're, you're living in another culture that you're part of. You never completely become like that culture. And then you realize that you've changed when you come back to your home culture. You don't quite fit in there either. And so it's this in-between stage that I think a lot of people who are globally focused, particularly kids, uh, experience that, that they are, they're part of things, but they're really not part of anything that's completely home to them. Talk for a moment about the work you were doing there before you transitioned back to the U.S. We went over initially in a role of connecting the U.S. church to the work in the Philippines, and not just the U.S., but other churches outside of the Philippines to actually the, the work that was ongoing on the ground in the Philippines. That was our initial connection there. Over a handful of years there, um, moved into becoming the field director for our work in the country. And again, just being able to get to see and observe across an entire country and then really moving out from there across Asia, just what God is doing and specifically in our domain, was heavily in the area of Bible translation. That was our primary focus. Well, tell me a little bit about your pathway from the Philippines ultimately to Wycliffe. What did that path look like? With the nine years I mentioned that we, you know, we worked and ministered over, over there and then came back here in 2001 as some of our kids were launching into college and such. And, and since that time, I participated in the work of Wycliffe but really from, from the U.S., which has provided a, a really neat opportunity just to—Asia was our focus, from the Philippines and Asia, and we lived over there, but really to have much more of a global focus of just what God is doing around the world, uh, literally all around the world today. Let's talk for a moment about coming back. Uh, how was it being reacclimated to the U.S., even for kids, after living in the Philippines? 
that was a big, big transition. And I would say particularly for all of us, it was, but for, for our kids having grown up in a very international culture, because the, the school they attended over there was a, was a missionary school that had kids from all over the culture. They loved that. And then coming back to the U S and having to learn kind of U S customs and cultures again, it, it was a, it was a big transition and a handful of our kids really wrestled with that for years not uncommon for people that have lived abroad and then come back and have to reacclimate to what we call their passport country. You know, this is where it says on their passport they're from, but their hearts, their minds, their worldviews and things like that are not, not so much that. And so it was a big transition and things that have changed. I remember the first time standing and uh, trying to figure out how to pay at the pump at the gas station. That all happened when we were overseas, you know. So some of those things like that that you just have to figure out, and the kids really, really experience that much more probably up close and personal than we as adults do even sometimes. Yeah. Talk for a moment about your transition to the leadership of Wycliffe. What did that look like? And and did you ever believe you'd be in a position of leading an organization like this? Well, you know, as I kind of look back to my early years of, Lord, what do you have, you know, for me next? And, and I felt like in this particular role, it just was kind of the Lord opened the door for that next step. And I did have the opportunity to become part of the executive leadership team of Wycliffe back in 2012 and, and journey with them as, as Wycliffe continued to grow and change, really. And then um, as uh, my predecessor began looking at a transition, then opportunity opened up to, to step in in 2019. Um, I don't know that I ever envisioned this, uh, moving forward, but have been hugely privileged to get to participate and steward this role for the season. Yeah, I want to talk about some specifics about Wycliffe, but since you mentioned that's kind of the time you came in, 2019, just a year later, COVID hits. How did that affect your ministry and the work of Wycliffe when, when that hit? You know, it was not part of the interview process, I'll tell you that. It was a... Uh, oh, like, by the way, you know, a by the way, exactly, is a pandemic and, yeah. is coming. I know, exactly. So, you know, um, it, it was... a. Uh, um, just like all ministries, you know, it was an opportunity really to uh, to lean in and to try to learn what God was trying to do, you know, or, you know, how to really provide wisdom and how to journey through a season that, at least within our generation, we'd never, never experienced anything like that before. It was really interesting, though, is that God used that season like everybody else, everything stopped. But during that time of the stoppage, at least our regular activities, there was a reforming of the work during that season. And what we actually saw during that COVID period is we saw uh, some of the greatest acceleration that we had ever seen experienced globally in Bible translation. But it was all happening very, very differently than what we had done before uh, the COVID season there. How would you describe that? What what did you see happening that that seem to be increasing the speed and efficacy of some of that in the midst of a what many would call a shutdown. Like all of us, again, that COVID, one of the things it did is it removed a lot of distractions in life, you know, because we couldn't, we were kind of holed up and we weren't able to do a lot of movement and things. And so one of the practical things that happened is that in our work where the teams that are working globally, um, Often we'll have a, a consultant that will come and visit to check up on their, their work, how are they doing, look over what they're doing, and interact with that, particularly around the quality assurance part of it. Well, typically it was 
people on the ground would do work and then they would wait for that consultant to show up. Well, when travel stopped, it was like, now what do you do? And so what ended up happening is that we're in those areas of the world where internet was available, we ended up having a lot more real-time interaction between the teams on the field, wherever they're at, and the consultant. And what we found is that where that was available, that the, the work progress actually increased. People couldn't go anywhere. And so uh, because of that, they were much more focused. And uh, it began to shift and has continued to shift a lot of the ways that we work globally. That's fascinating because uh, some some industries literally shut down. I mean, they could, some ministries literally shut down and had to, as the, the big word that came out of it, pivot That's right. to something else. But it sounds like because of the intensity of being uh, focused on what you could do at home and this ability to connect via the internet, that it really opened doors for you all that maybe for some ministries that were more reliant on travel, uh, they had to shut down. You had opportunity to move forward. We did, and certainly that wasn't the case in all places around the world, but in, in many places around the world. Again, it just it allowed for more focused time. And uh, and people were able to, yeah, there was a lot of progress that got done in some of the places of the world where that was available to do so. I know from previous conversations with folks at Wycliffe and visiting there over the years that uh, obviously the computer was a huge thing for uh, Bible translation, but even more so in recent years, my understanding that uh, the use of uh, satellites and different types of technology have benefited what you do. Talk for a moment about how technology is uh, helping speed up the process. Well, technology has, just as you said, um, it has incredibly increased the speed and our efficiencies around the around the world and the work. And part of what we're seeing right now is um, is some of the things we're hearing about, you know, chat GPT and things like that, the AI experience. We are able to test a lot of those things. We've been testing some of those types of things, not chat GPT, but some things like that, again, of how we might be able to use, continue use technology in areas of machine learning. So, you know, with the data that's able to be placed into the software and things where that is available, how can it learn to help do things like drafting of scriptures and, and such, and then just the quality and consistency across the translation that it's it's happening, uh, you know, consistently. And so uh, we've got multiple things right now that we, I say we, it's not just Wycliffe, but we in the Bible translation space are testing collectively, and we have high hopes we're going to continue to see that pace continue because of increase, because of because of technology. There's so many negative things technology is used for. It's always wonderful to hear about good things, uh, holy things, biblical things being done with technology. So grateful for for that, and and you all staying on top of that with with the group of folks that you work with across the country and around the world. Talk for a moment about the translation itself. I know this has been going on for many, many years, but I also know you have had some pretty aggressive goals about getting translations made. Can you kind of tell us about where we are in the process, how much is left to do, that kind of thing? Back in uh, the late 1990s, in 1999, as kind of collectively the, the Wycliffe's of the world and some others, SIL and other partners, looked and began to try to look ahead, we realized that the current pace of translation at that point in time, for what we knew at that time of the remaining languages, at that pace it was going to take 150 years. And we just felt, that is not something, Lord, that's not acceptable. The number, the literally millions of people are going to enter eternity without any hope. 
because they did not have scripture in a language they can understand. So Vision 2025 is something that was kind of birthed. It was really a vision laying before the Lord and saying, Lord, would you give us this? And so here we are at that time, 3,000 known languages that still did not have any translation. And, uh, you know, here we are, um, you know, now about two and a half, depending on where you're at, you know, two plus years out. And uh, today we're down to about 1,500 languages that still don't have scripture. Now, those are the least of the least and often the smallest of the small, you know, not not completely, but around. But there's still, um, that's still the, the number that have not started. When you look at um, the number of people that still don't have access to a full Bible in a language or languages, many people speak more than one language or forms that they understand, we just crossed over the 8 billion mark, likely, as a you know, global population. There's still about 1.5 billion people today that would say, we're one of those to be counted that we don't have access to all of God's Word in a language or form we understand. So there's still a lot of work to be done. Talk for a moment about what those greatest needs are for Wycliffe. Is it people to translate? Is it people to go abroad? Is it some of these technology people? Is it churches to support? What What is it that helps you accomplish those tasks that you have before you? You know, I would say that um, you're right. We've got the, the focus upon prayer, the focus upon people that, um, you know, recruiting those from the U.S., uh, the majority of the workforce is outside of the U.S. now in the Church of the Global South and East. Um, the funding to continue to move it forward, all those things are really, really important technology. I would say, though, that probably the, our biggest need, and as you think about the Bible translation space, what might you pray for specifically? And that would be unity. Believe it or not, you know, when you think about it, that is often the area that the enemy attacks to disrupt and discourage is in around unity. And I say that particularly today. That's always been true with the church, but I think today Day because what, one of the things that we're seeing God do, and I think probably never before in the history of the world, is that he is bringing together his church globally through partnerships, whether it be church denominations, mission organizations, individuals on the ground, bringing together his body globally to accomplish the task together in ways that we have never seen in the history of the world before. And so that's why this issue of unity and praying for unity is so, so important to us today, because I'll give you an example. One of the the partnerships that's been a newer, growing partnership for us as Wycliffe has been with our friends at YWAM. When you think of Bible translators and how Bible translators are wired, you know, and if you've been around YWAMers at all, the enthusiasm, excitement, we're kind of like polar opposites in that regard. God has brought together this unique uh, partnership where YWAM is asking the Lord for a thousand of those remaining languages. Might we have a part in seeing those reach? And so we've been partnering together in the way that YWAM does ministry, not trying to get them to do the way ministry or Bible translation the way Wycliffe does, but how has God wired them? And so this is just one of the unique partnerships that he's bringing about. That's happening among denominations and other things just like that. And so praying for unity because we're very different, and yet the Lord is bringing us together and using us together. That's incredible. It's one of the things I've heard a lot about from different ministries, even uh, those who look to the future related to mission work, to ministry, is the need for more and more partnerships. And, you know, having been involved in many ministries myself over time, everybody has kind of their lane, and this is what we do, and well, yeah, they do that, but but this concept seems to be catching on, that we can't do everything ourselves, and, and maybe in these times as we're 
probably rapidly approaching Christ's return, we need to be wrapping arms around each other. It's that unity, but it's those partnerships that seem to be growing as well. It really is, and I think it delights the heart of our Father, seeing his kids participate together. And, and you're right, it is. I believe it's something that, this, that God's Spirit is doing across the world in multiple domains. We're talking Bible translation today, but if I turn to my friends and colleagues in the church planting area, the way that God is bringing together networks and around church planting, as they've never seen before, evangelism to discipleship. You know, again, in our space of Bible translation, one of the latest growing partnerships is with national church planting movements, people from the respective countries that God has placed on their heart, their country or their region of the world that they want to see churches planted. And as they're looking up, they're realizing, well, a lot of these areas, there's no scripture. How are we going to plant churches that have any roots that go deep without that? And so that's, again, where they're, God's bringing together um, these church planting movements, disciple-making movements, and they're saying, can we partner together with you to help see Scripture translated into these languages so that we can plant churches, so that we can disciple, so we can evangelize together? And again, this is just, I believe, one of the areas that God's Spirit is moving together, breaking down walls, breaking down these divisions that we've had over the years, and saying, we've got to do this together, and He's bringing us together to carry out His mission. I just recently talked to a gentleman who works with Voice of the Martyrs, and he was talking about persecution of the church, the underground church in China, some of those folks they cover and and interact with and learn from about what God's doing. And one of the parts of the conversation was about the Bible, that there's many countries you can literally be arrested or killed for having a Bible. Do you all ever face situations where you're trying to get a translation done, and and the question is, are you going to be able to get it to the people? Is it going to be allowed by the government? Do you ever deal with that kind of interference or blockage from a government? It is. A, it's a huge issue. It is, it's a big in many parts of the world. Again, where those the areas of the world that don't have Scripture Often it is it is governments, it's majority religions that would be opposed to Christianity that is that barrier. Even in times in some of the miracle stories, even of when a translation may have been done and they send out that translation to be printed in another another country where they, they're able to print on the type of paper that Bibles are printed on things. And then how many times that we literally have to pray them through customs. We've got to pray them through uh, you know, the, these different barriers. And so, and that again is coming back to technology where where the cell phone, the internet, you know, it, people can, can take God's word with them wherever they go on this device that we carry around. And at times, in some of these sensitive contexts, they can also delete it when there's a problem, and then and then bring it back on after a, a situation has passed there. But access to God's Word, because of those purposes, is, is a huge barrier in many places around the world. A couple of final questions. Uh, first, any story, any translation, any group in the time that you've been part of Wycliffe, something that stands out to you is, boy, that was just an incredible experience or an incredible new product that that was put into somebody's hand. Anything come to mind? So this summer, uh, my wife and I are getting to take a team back to the Philippines, and uh, we're really excited about that. We're going for a full Bible uh, dedication. For me, one of the things that is most exciting to see how God's Word has progressed over the years there. And as I mentioned earlier, just, you know, a start with a, a person from the outside that uh, that brought, they were the first gospel presence. And then over time, as as the church took root there, 
this particular translation today was all done by Filipino colleagues. And they are literally taking these scriptures once they are, you know, we'll have them printed and things. And then there have been villages, there's been churches planted in the villages all up and down the mountain. And now it's, it's, it's people from believers from this church at the bottom of the mountain that are going to be taking it up and down the mountain, basically to, to other churches that they were part of helping to start. Those types of stories of how God's Word is coming may have been an outsider that originally started some of these, but how God is using and raising up the local church to carry out their mission and what God has placed on their heart. And uh, for me, that's that's super exciting just to get to see that story over time and now to get to participate with them in their celebration this summer. That's wonderful. I know that'll be a special time for, for you and your team. Finally, you mentioned about things to pray for, just prayer in general, the support, church participation. You, pray, you talked about praying for unity. What's your vision for the next three to five years? What is it you're, you're hoping that, that Wycliffe can accomplish or be part of in the next three to five years? So what we're really asking God for as Wycliffe is that we get to play a part. Obviously, we're using talking about Wycliffe today, but Wycliffe is you know working with literally hundreds of partners globally, and there's other Bible agencies that God is raising up, individuals and things. We're praying for those remaining languages that God's Word would be able to go forth, it would be present, we'd be to start translations, we'd be to finish translations in these areas, and this is a big we that's working together. And it's not just that Bible translation is an end in and of itself, because we realize, again, without Scripture in a language and form that people understand, churches can't be planted where roots run deep, discipleship, evangelism, and things. So this is really the core element, I would say, of the Great Commission task, of scripture is at the core of that and for all these other activities. And so we're really asking for and believing that we're gonna see in these next handful of years that these are not only started, but prayerfully, one of the years we're asking God for is 2033, the 2000th year of Christ's ascension into, into heaven, that all peoples of the earth would have access to scripture in a language and form that they can understand. That's what we're asking God for. Now that's something we can all pray for together. My thanks to Dr. Chestnut for his time. More about him and Wycliffe in today's podcast notes. Like, share, and give us an iTunes review for today's podcast next week, Amsterdam 2023. Missions Today is a production of Resource Global.